Hey everyone, welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking about the baby formula shortage, Somalia, and NATO expansion. So in the news recently, I'm sure that you've read stories or seen headlines all about a baby formula shortage that the United States is experiencing right now. Um, th- that is because uh, in early May, I couldn't find uh, more recent numbers than this, but in early May, there was a nationwide 21% of powdered baby formula was out of stock. So 21% nationwide. Okay, so that is the entire country. Now, obviously, e- when we get to more local and we talk about states, some states are even in, are in even worse shape than this 21%. Some states, uh, over half of their baby formula shortage or baby formula stock is out of uh, stock, which is, you know, breathtaking. Think about, you know, how important this is. This is literally life or death for children, and uh, and parents are going to do whatever it takes to get this. I mean, this is serious stuff, and it's uh, we're experiencing a shortage. The reasons we're experiencing a shortage are, are rather interesting. So we're experiencing short. We were experiencing shortages to begin with because of COVID, because of supply chain issues that we've, you know, that have affected every industry. So those are still in play here. Um, so we have those shortages, and we've had those shortages. However, um, they were made worse when in Abbott, uh, when Abbott Laboratories uh, recalled some products and closed a, a plant in Sturgis, Michigan, earlier this year. So they shut down this plant because uh, some babies were they got sick after uh, uh, eating, f- uh, receiving formula from this plant. And uh, it was discovered within this plant that they actually uh, discovered the bacteria that they got sick with or virus, one of the two. And so they had to shut down the plant and uh, recall those products. Well, this worsened the ar- the shortage that we were already having because they produce a ton of baby formula in the United States. Now, y- you know, one solution is, okay, we, we once we get this resolved, the shortage will be over, right? We can just start reproducing. They get that uh, factory can open and start producing baby formula. Well, the issue with that is even if the plant were to reopen, the company says that it would still take six to eight weeks. If it reopened tomorrow, it takes six to eight weeks to get that formula on the shelves. Okay, so six to eight weeks, this can get a lot worse, and a lot of people can be in serious trouble in, in six to eight weeks if this doesn't get figured out. So that's the kind of short term why it's happening now, why the shortage is so bad now. But this is really made even worse by certain government regulations and kind of the economic policy agenda of the United States. So some government regulations that are already in place uh, that we have is making this worse. For example, we have incredibly high tariffs on imported baby formula. So, uh, and this is uh, tariffs not just with countries like China. So, you know, typically when people think of tariffs, and recently they they've thought of putting tariffs on China, a country that were you know, at kind of have hostile relationship with. Uh, we were at a, in a trade war with China, and so we think of putting tariffs on them. But th- this isn't just tariffs on China. This is actually tariffs on uh, countries like Canada as well. So we have a free trade agreement with Canada. It used to be NAFTA, and now it is the USMCA. It was signed under the uh, Trump administration, and they actually made this these tariffs even higher under this new uh, trade agreement with Canada. So I mean, we're putting tariffs on uh, countries that we're geographically, economically, and politically very close to, not, you know, these hostile powers like China. So we put these 
incredibly high tariffs on this uh, imported baby formula, which means that these countries don't want to produce uh, baby formula to get into the United States, to, to uh, sell in the United States, because it's not going to make as much money because they have to um, put the, they, they get these tariffs put on them, which lowers the amount of people, the demand for them. Uh, now, the goal of this is to uh, kind of onshore uh, production. So the goal, you know, the, the goal of any sort of tariff would be to pr- essentially incentivize people in America to buy American-made products and to incentivize companies to make uh, those products in America. And so we uh, are incentivizing companies to make baby formula in America by putting uh, these tariffs on foreign uh, f- uh, baby formula. So we do this. But again, we see an issue with that. Uh, so we, you know, you, you heard throughout COVID of uh, this, you know, kind of call to bring a lot of production back home, so that we aren't reliant on these international uh, supply chains. So we think about, you know, Shanghai right now. Shanghai is locked down uh, because of China's zero COVID policy, and that affects us because we we uh, import a lot of goods that come from Shanghai. So one, you know, response to that is say, well, why don't we just bring that manufacturing to the United States so we aren't reliant on a country like China. Uh, and, and their policies. Um, well, that's that sounds great, but then that makes actually makes us uh, more vulnerable, not necessarily to like international affairs, but to domestic things that could happen. So uh, again, we have this plant in Michigan. It is on. It is in the country. It is domestic, and something happens. Now, in this case, it's something um, that you know could happen really anywhere. Uh, some bacteria or you know germs uh, are present, and that you know contaminates the product. Um, but you know, say it was a tornado that wiped out this plant. Say it was a, a snow snow a snowstorm, or say it was uh, you know whatever it was that was localized. Well, that makes our supply chains vulnerable. And so this is an issue with these kind of economic policies, is they make our supply chains vulnerable because uh, it it doesn't allow companies to distribute risks to other countries and actually um, put supply chains throughout the world to uh, limit exposure uh, uh, for products like baby formula. So that's one way uh, the government is making this worse. Another way the government is making this worse is uh, the FDA has incredibly strict labeling and nutritional standards. So again, this sounds good, right? We want baby formula to have a very uh, high bar to meet in terms of the labels you put on it and the nutritional standards that we apply to it. But the issue is, is we apply these to uh, products that and baby formula that passes European tests. So, uh, you know, European babies are doing just fine. They are they are consuming this baby formula that in the United States we aren't we don't approve. The FDA doesn't approve because well it's labeled incorrectly. So you know th- I mean that's just pure ridiculousness, right? So it, it, in you know times of prosperity, it works fine. It doesn't really affect us. Uh, well, it, you know it, we don't notice the effects of it, but in times of serious emergency like we have here, the FDA is still you know, not allowing baby formula from Europe um, to come in mass because it doesn't meet these labeling nutritional standards. So, you know, we have the shortage that, and, and European countries aren't experiencing the shortage because uh, they don't have these stupid regulations, but we are because we have these stupid regulations that, again, sound good in theory, but when applied, they limit the supply that is available in the United States. 
And then finally, the other government regulation that is making this worse is the way that the WIC program is set up. So WIC WIC is essentially it's um, it's a low income women can get a baby formula from uh, the government, uh, either free or at least a reduced price. And uh, the issue that the way that the program is set up is that it, you can only use money from WIC to buy limited baby formula. So uh, you can only buy baby formula certain kinds and from certain companies. And so what this does is, and, and WIC is a massive, the money from WIC is, it is buys a massive amount of baby formula in the market. And so what this does is it actually disincentivizes other companies from getting involved in the baby formula market. So typically what would happen is during a shortage, prices would skyrocket. And when prices skyrocket, other companies are incentivized to get into that um, industry to take advantage and make a lot of money because prices are so high. When that happens, supply increases and the price will eventually level out. Well, that's not happening because these companies don't want to get involved in the baby formula business because they know they basically can't tap into this WIC program because uh, WIC only allows for certain companies to be bought using their money. So this is disincentivizing other companies from getting involved, which is, again, is making this entire situation worse. Now, the Biden administration uh, could simply uh, get rid of all of these regulations, and that could be helping the situation a whole lot. Uh, instead, they're trying to help in other ways. So they, the Biden administration invoked the, def, the, the Defense Production Act. This is to increase the production of baby formula. It requires suppliers to prioritize giving resources to man, U.S. manufacturers of formula. Uh, they also, the Defense Department, is using its contracts with commercial air cargo lines to pick up formula from other countries. So kind of subverting those regulations that I talked about earlier that basically m mandate certain nutritional facts and labels to be put on these products. So instead of just getting rid of these regulations, we're now uh, the government is trying to uh, cover up their mistakes by putting the full effort of the government behind it. Uh, so again, this is the this is why I harp again and again and again on economic policy and on the reality that markets and free market is the only way to go. These, you know, ideas of tariffs and bringing things back to America to manufacture them in America, they sound good, but there's real economic consequences to a lot of these programs that we don't see in times of prosperity. But it's when times get tough, like we see with the baby formula a crisis that we're experiencing, that's when is, uh, these issues really come to the forefront and when these policies really make life worse for a lot of people. Moving on to Texas, so uh, the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned an emergency injunction implemented by a lower court uh, for a Texas HB 20 bill. This is uh, known as kind of the Texas social media, media bill. Uh, so an emergency injunction, what happens is if, if a law is passed and you think that law infringes on your constitutional rights, you could ask for an emergency injunction to basically the law won't go into effect until it is ruled in court, um, ruled on. So this just gets rid of that emergency injunction. This doesn't mean the law has, you know, been ruled constitutional. It just means that it is now going to be put in place. So this uh, social media bill, again, HB, Texas HB 20, uh, it mandates that a social media platform, so that's, those are sites that qualify as sites with 50 million active monthly users or more, says, quote, may not censor a user based on the viewpoint of a user or another person regardless of of whether the viewpoint is expressed on a social media platform or through any other medium. So a, a social media site uh, like Twitter cannot regulate its platform, cannot you know kick people off their platform if they disagree with their speech. 
I completely disagree with this use of law. This is an, uh, an attack on a, a private company's ability to regulate its own speech. So, you know, it, we think of the, these social media companies in terms of big tech, and, you know, we use the word big to make it sound, you know, big and evil. But, you know, if we, if we kind of localize what this law is saying, so again, this is, yes, this is applying to a social media company of a certain size, um, but the principle of the First Amendment applies to big companies and small companies and, you know, important people, powerful people, and insignificant people in our system. Well, Think about it in, in these ways. So if I, if I own a, a coffee shop, and in my coffee shop, I have a, uh, a board that I allow people in the community to post on. And so they can come and put flyers on it. They can put, you know, messages on it, whatever. And, and you know, it's my coffee company, and it's my coffee shop, and I enjoy it, and it's great. And it's a good way to engage and whatever. Well, then someone puts uh, something I disagree with. They put, you know... Uh, abortion should be legal or something like that. And I'm pro-life, and so I see that, and I don't want to advocate that. I don't want my store to be associated with that, so I take it down. That is essentially what uh, social media companies do. They, we like to, people, a lot of people will call them the uh, public square, but they're not the public square. They are a private company that is allowing them to use your webs their website to voice your opinions. So just like I allow people in my coffee shop to uh, use this board to post their messages, that's what social media companies are doing. So, you know, if the government, if you wouldn't want the government to come to my coffee shop and tell me that I must, so the, the, this Texas bill would, is essentially telling a coffee shop, would be telling a coffee shop, you have to keep that message up there. It doesn't matter if you disagree with it or not. You have to keep that uh, message up there. I think that is an infringement on the right of private property. And so this uh, bill is a bad idea. It, it, these kinds of bills are a bad idea. Big tech, it doesn't matter that it's big. It doesn't matter how big these companies get. They still have constitutional rights that we have to protect. Because if we don't protect the constitutional right in this scenario, what, what limits the government from saying, okay, now it's going to be any company with an employee base of 100 employees? Any company of 25 employees, any co like they can keep lowering this bar. So it's important that we fight for this principle now. And Texas, again, a Republican state, is not doing that here. They actually are infringing on the constitutional rights of uh, these social media companies. And then quickly, uh, the uh, gas prices are continuing to rise. So the average price of gas reached a record of $4.59 per gallon on Thursday. Uh, these prices are actually expected to remain high through the summer. So uh, these gas prices, so if you um, remember a few, uh, probably a month or so ago now, uh, I had uh, my friend Noah on the podcast, and he basically laid out for us you know, why gas prices were as high as they were. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, during COVID times, these companies shut down production because there was no demand. So they shut down production, and in order to get pr production up and running again, it takes time. So that's one reason. The other reason is um, they are uh, these uh, oil and gas companies are hesitant to produce more because that would require bringing on a ton of debt to do that. And when you bring on a ton of debt, not only are interest rates going up, which is going to you know negatively affect the amount of debt you have and your ability to pay back that debt, but these companies did that in the early 2010s, and they got screwed by it. They um, were you know unprofitable, and they were terrible investments for the entire decade essentially because they uh, they 
took on a ton of debt and then they started producing a lot and then the, the price of oil tanked. And so they're weary of doing that again. So prices are staying elevated. Yeah, I actually te- texted Noah before this and asked, you know, has anything changed? And he said, no, not really. The only thing that's really changed is that Europe has essentially announced that they're a plan to cut themselves off from Russian oil. So now, you know, you, you think about it, that, which is, he even said, is a bold strategy. Um, we'll, we'll see that if they're even capable of doing that or not, because you're going to have to find that energy. You're going to have to get that energy from somewhere. So if that does happen and they do remove themselves and cut themselves off from Russian oil, that means they have to get their oil from somewhere. And so where where they get that oil from uh, is going to be the, uh, the rest of the world market, which uh, is going to, again, increase the price for the entire world because um, if Europe is willing to pay more, then the oil will find its way there. So uh, this is uh, going to continue. These prices are going to remain elevated until production goes up or demand comes down. And if demand comes down, that is likely because of a recession. So uh, the economy, it really has the potential of stagflation. Um, I, you know, I haven't said that word yet, um, but that's essentially high inflation and low growth. It's kind of what marked the 1970s, and uh, high gas prices uh, in the 70s was a one re- one reason for that. And, and so, we, if these prices remain elevated, and then you have the Fed continue to raise rates to tamp down on inflation, uh, but these prices remain elevated, that means you're still going to have higher price of goods. But you're going to have a lower demand. And in fact, we are starting to see a slowdown in the economy because of that. Uh, and so, or as evidence of that lower demand. So we, I mean, really do could have the potential of some serious stagflation, which is kind of the worst of both worlds. It's a bad economy and high, and high prices that make you pay a lot of money and really impact people's wallets. And now on to international news. So the Biden administration announced that they were sending a few hundreds of troops uh, back into Somalia. So in late 2020, um, then-President Donald Trump actually pulled out roughly 700 troops from Somalia. So this is kind of part of his, you know, ending forever wars, quote-unquote, policy. And uh, he pulled these troops out. But the reason why they were even there to begin with is because there is a a group uh, called Al-Shabaab, which is a, a arm of al-Qaeda that is uh, essentially fighting a civil war in Somalia right now. So they are actually, um, you know, a, they're, that ter- they're a terrorist organization fighting for control of the Somalian government. Uh, some have even compared this to, you know, kind of pre-9-11 Afghanistan, where the Taliban was trying to get control control of Afghanistan and were gaining control in Afghanistan. And then because of that, they were able to basically operate. Uh, Al-Qaeda was able to operate in Afghanistan pretty much without issue. And so what we had the potential of in Somalia is this Al-Shabaab group, this Al-Qaeda arm, uh, getting control of the Somalia government and being able to do whatever they want from there, being able to train, recruit, plan, etc. And so um, sending troops back in is basically a, a move away from this more isolationist tendency in uh, the, the, the politics that we have been seeing of recent. So this is actually in contrast to Biden's Afghanistan policy. So if you think back to Afghanistan, that he pulled troops out of Afghanistan, and it was a you know disaster we talked about at the time. When he did that, people were asking, okay, what are you going to do about you know the the you know Al Qaeda or terrorists that are going to you know theoretically have a safe spot in Afghanistan? He basically said we're going to uh, do over the horizon 
uh, missions. So in other words, they're going to be plant or based somewhere outside of Afghanistan. And if they feel caused to go in, then they're going to go in. And I criticized that at the time, but you know, because we don't. Your intelligence is limited if you're not in the country on the ground, and then your capabilities of addressing issues is limited if you're not on the ground in the country. And in fact, this is what they cited in Somalia. They said that they're sending troops back in because it was proving ineffective to do it from other countries. So they were actually sending in to Somalia still troops and, and you know, uh, conducting missions from other countries like Djibouti in Africa. They're going into Somalia, but they, it proved ineffective. So if this is ineffective in Somalia, a country that is much smaller, a group that is much less powerful than the Taliban, then how in the world is this going to be effective in Afghanistan? And the answer is it's not going to be. It's just straight up is not going to be effective in Afghanistan. It was something the Biden administration said in order to, um, you know, scapegoat and say that we've got this under control when they didn't. And so this policy in Somalia is in direct contrast to their Afghanistan policy. It makes no sense. I mean, I'm glad they're sending in, you know, hundreds of troops in Somalia if they feel like that's what they need to do. Um, but it goes against their policy in Afghanistan. So we need to do something about the policy in Afghanistan then, or at least uh, we shouldn't have done what we did, which is, uh, I think, clear to almost anyone at this point. In other international news, Sweden and Finland formally applied to NATO. Uh, so th within a few months, it is expected that they will be approved. Uh, there's still a couple holdouts. So uh, NATO countries have to unanimously agree to allow new countries in to the treaty. And so they're not unanimously agreed yet. But there's, you know, most people are projecting and predicting that they will eventually uh, agree to this. And uh, what this means is that Sweden and Finland will be included in the mutual defense pact that is NATO. So if you know one country of NATO gets attacked, then theoretically the others have to come to their defense. Well, you know, Sweden and Finland actually won't be included in this mutual defense pact until uh, the they officially join. That could take a few months. And you know, there's some you know there's there's been some talk about okay, so what happens if Russia attacks? Then, right, because they see this as an aggressive act. In fact, this was uh, Russia's one of their excuses for invading Ukraine is that they were allegedly because of NATO expansion. They they didn't want Ukraine to join NATO, even though there was no realistic shot of Ukraine really joining NATO. They use that as a justification for invading. So I'm using their own logic. They have to. They should, you know, go invade or attack Finland and Sweden because, especially Finland, it's on their border. So it's kind of it's the exact same scenario as Ukraine or what they claimed in Ukraine. Again, I don't buy that argument for why Putin did that, but you know that's their argument. Well, the U.S. did say that even though they're not technically in the defense pact, they will not, the United States will not tolerate, quote, will not tolerate any aggression against Finland or Sweden during this process. So it sounds like, though they're not technically in the mutual defense pact, they kind of informally are, at least that's what that statement says to me. So this is a massive win for NATO. The larger NATO can get with countries that align with the NATO mission, this means that the Western world, the Western bloc, is is going to it increases its power. It increases its ability to influence international affairs. It uh, goes against. It fights against the uh, influence and power of countries uh, and our adversaries like Russia and China. So this is a great thing uh, for these countries. It's a great thing for uh, NATO. It's a great thing for the United States. And I'm glad to see it.
In my last bit of international news, I want to talk about Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka, I talked about last time on the podcast, they did indeed default on their debt. They defaulted this past Wednesday on their debt. They were unable to pay back their debt. Now, I mentioned that they had already started talks with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, for a bailout of tens of billions of dollars. Um, to basically cover their losses and cover their um, their creditors. And um, that has not happened, and as a result, they have defaulted. Now, what this means is they are essentially in pretty economic dire straits right now. So inflation in the country is already at 30, around 30%, which is just, you know, stupidly high. It's almost triple the rate of, it's over triple the rate of inflation in the United States. Uh, and it's likely to go higher now that they've defaulted. So uh, it's projected that within the next coming months that they will be around 40% inflation, which is, again, is just um, stupid levels, tragic levels for the people of Sri Lanka. Also included in this, because the economic devastation is so high, there's they're also experiencing shortages of foreign exchange, fuel, medicine, economic activity, and now possibly food. So the Sri Lanka government actually came out and said that they're expecting or they're, you know, they could have serious food shortages and people starving because uh, the economy has basically come to a halt because, uh, you know, the world economy relies on credit, relies on the uh, trustworthiness of countries to pay for goods and services uh, from other countries. And, you know, Sri Lanka has now defaulted and proven that they cannot pay. So again, they, they did this because of mismanaging their own funds, their own uh, money. So this is a tragic situation in Sri Lanka. I don't know how much it will actually impact the greater you know, global economy. Sri Lanka isn't that big of an, an economy, uh, but it is devastating for the pre- people of Sri Lanka. And we should be thankful. And this is why, you know, economic uh, conservative um, spending for governments, even though the America uh, American dollar is the global reserve currency, uh, it is still important that we have our budget in check. And I would argue that we don't right now in the United States. So this is, you know, obviously not, you know, likely to happen in the United States anytime soon. It does it is, serves as an example of what happens when a country spins out of their means. And the United States, I would say, is certainly doing that now. So um, be praying for the people of Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't know about the IMF. I don't know if they're going to bail them out. And I don't really know uh, if they should or not. Um, but it's just a terrible situation altogether. And this brings me to the breakdown of the breakdown part of the podcast where I break down my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, which you can subscribe to and read on Substack. And this week I talked about Western civilization. So I haven't talked about it yet on the podcast, but on uh, Saturday, uh, this past uh, a week ago, uh, there was a teenager that drove several hours to a grocery store in Buffalo where they began to open fire. They killed uh, 10 people, uh, shot uh, three extra, uh, three more that did not die. So 13 people in total were shot and then 10 were killed. And I talked about kind of his reason for it. And it's been all over the news. And he believed in essentially this great replacement theory, which is uh, this idea that uh, people are being uh, being actively recruited and immigrants are being actively recruited into the country in order to replace white uh, people. Uh, and he as- associates a white people with the Western world. And in my newsletter, what I do is I lay out why this is a bad, why this is incorrect, why this is ignorant. And it's not just the product of white supremacists that actually associate Western civilization with white people, but it's actually progressives do this as well. They will say that when you, when you say white civil, white, uh, uh, Western civilization, all you're really saying is white. You mean white culture, you mean white people. And 
I just completely disagree with this framing. I disagree with this this association. Um, so I argue that the the West and Western civilization is really it, it kind of it comes from this tension between uh, some people have said between Jerusalem and Greece. Uh, so uh, Jerusalem, what I mean by that is the ancient Hebrews. Uh, beginning in uh, the kind of the Old Testament of the Bible, they are given laws. They're given the Ten Commandments. They're given the Mosaic laws. They're giving, uh, and the people of Israel are they abide by that those laws and some of those ideas. The idea of the Triune God, the, the fact that there is a God that exists above the law. That the law doesn't come from the King, but the law actually comes from God, and that the King, even the King of Israel, is. Uh, is under this law, and then you have the Ten Commandments that provide the moral underpinning of Western civilization. Things like don't kill, uh, don't steal, don't lie. The fact that a man is created in the image of God, and and that because of that, they have real value in the sight of God, and that every man is created in the image of God. So every man has the same sort of value in the sight of God. Those that is the moral underpinning of the Hebrew or the J- Jerusalem side, Judeo-Christian side of Western civilization, and it's kind of you know, on the other side of Western civilization, you have uh, Greece, ancient Greece. You have this focus on rationality, this focus on um, thinking through logically, uh, observing the world in a way, and then thinking through how to rationally debate, rationally order things. And, and those two um, t- uh, points, Jerusalem and uh, Athens, can actually conflict they can actually um, contradict one another very often. Uh, and so the, the Western civilization has existed in this form of tension. And then you go past those two points, you go into the Roman Empire where we have the legacy of the Roman legal system. You have the Middle Ages with the development of a, a, a institution, the church, that influenced uh, and spread Christian morality throughout Europe. Then you have world trade in the Renaissance beginning. You have the development of this idea of the individual, and the individual uh, is going to be amplified even more in the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution and the, Envi- and the Enlightenment. You just have the story of the West is this story of these these tensions, and um, and, and it's not just the tension of you know Jerusalem and Athens, but the tension between uh, individualism and then also abiding by these moral responsibilities uh, to the collective that Judeo-Christian values mandates, and so. That is the story of the West, that right there. And that is the ideal. That is what the West is striving after. Um, but in that notion, there is no such thing as white, right? The Greeks weren't white. Uh, the Hebrews weren't white. Uh, so it's not a racial categorization. It's rather this pursuing of this ideal. And it was uh, you know, originally in Western Europe, but it has now spread to all across the world and it hasn't always, Western civilization hasn't always lived up to that ideal. It has used race as a category, as a category, but we, we should move beyond that. And this white supremacist and the progressive, you know, woke types that want to associate Western civ with white are one in the same. And they both miss the fact that Western civilization has produced the world that we know. It has produced this great civilization that has its flaws, that has uh, committed, you know, fatal mistakes in the past, but has also produced the most uh, human flourishing the world has ever seen. And so we should continue to pursue this ideal. In order to do that, we have to disassociate Western civilization with white. And with that, that is the end of the podcast this week. So thank you for listening. Uh, Like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide. And I hope that you will return again next week.